0: You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are, or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to MedSLPCollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode
1: 228 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Yin Yu, She's a board-certified otolaryngologist who specializes in laryngology, which is the care of voice, airway, and swallowing disorders. She practices at the Texas Voice Center within the Department of Otolaryngology, head and neck surgery at Houston Methodist Hospital. She completed her medical education and surgical internship at Baylor College of Medicine and then fulfilled her residency training with the highly ranked ENT department at The Ohio State University. She pursued a year of advanced fellowship training in laryngology in New York City, through the Center for Voice and Swallowing at Columbia University Medical Center and the Sean Parker Institute for the Voice at Weill Cornell Medicine. Dr. Yu maintains broad clinical interests encompassing the breadth of laryngology and has published peer-reviewed research on a variety of topics, including laryngeal dystonia, recurrent respiratory papillomatosis, and airway stenosis. She has a passion for education and serves as the Director of Medical Student Education and was recently named the Associate Program Director for her department's new Otolaryngology Residency Program.
0: Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa
1: Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the Medislp Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Dr. Yu. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining. All right. So tell people a little bit about yourself. So hello,
2: everyone. My name is Yin Yu. I am an ENT or otolaryngologist. I am from Houston, well, sort of. I grew up in Texas, various parts of Texas, but I say Houston to make it easy. But I left several times for my training and now am back here practicing. I practice at Houston Methodist Hospital. I am a laryngologist, meaning I do voice airway and swallowing disorders. And it has been a lot of fun. I started back here in practice in 2019, so right before the pandemic. So that was my first year as an attending, which was very exciting, but yeah. Things have settled out nicely here. We're building a nice practice here, and I'm having a great time and I'm excited to be here today.
1: Awesome, awesome. And I know some of you all are familiar with Maurice Goodwin, he's a fan favorite around here, and also Teresa Proctor. <laughs> Those are the wonderful SLPs that you get to work with. So yes. I'm grateful to them for connecting us to Dr. You because I know that she's got a lot to talk about. And I just wanted to have you on because I know so oftentimes SLPs will say they have rough relationships with their ENTs or they just can't get them on board. And I just love talking with Maurice and and Teresa and you guys just have such a beautiful collaborative relationship together. So I was curious to just, yeah, just wanted to, wanted to chat with you. So where should we start? Well, I thought maybe we can just talk a little bit about what our practice is and what we do here
2: for the listeners who might be curious. So as Teresa mentioned, I have two wonderful speech language pathologists I work with, though they are only kind of the two within our practice, but then there are also some in the hospital I interface with as well. And so we'll delve into that a little bit. So, our practice uh, again is at Houston Methodist uh, in Houston, which is kind of one of the main hospitals um, in town in the medical center. If any of you have been here, which is the largest medical center in the world, I believe, actually. So, I've spent a lot of time here personally. I went to medical school at Baylor College of Medicine, which uh, a lot of the hospitals that we rotate at are also here in the Med Center. So, it's like a, it, have you been here, Teresa? It's like a, yeah, it's like a downtown, like a mini city and it's all hospitals and medical schools and nursing schools, and it's pretty wild. So we practice here. Our practice is mostly outpatient, and so it's myself, and then my partner is Dr. P. Sekti who's also a laryngologist, and then our former partner who retired before I started, Dr. Stasny, kind of created the practice and called it the Texas Voice Center, and so it used to be a private practice within the hospital, but then about three, four years ago, we actually joined the hospital department, which created an ENT department. So it's all like very new. We're growing very quickly. So now we have 10 ENTs in our practice in the medical center, but then we also have some general ENTs out in the community. We work with the residents that are in town from several other institutions, and we actually just got approved for our own residency, which is really exciting. So we are interviewing. Yeah. So like that was just a few months ago. So we're interviewing as we speak, actually, in the next couple months here for our first Kind of residents of our own, so it's a really busy kind of fun practice that I feel like I walked into, and we're kind of building it from the ground up. So, but in the smaller kind of portion of the ENT department, the voice center is myself, Dr. Thaketi, and then Marisa Teresa. So we deal with uh, mostly voice, airway, upper airway disorders, some swallowing disorders. Uh, What's a little different, I know a lot of the, you know, this podcast obviously is called Swallow Your Pride. So a lot of the swallowing, we don't do in our office a lot. I see swallowing patients, but in terms of therapy and all of that, we kind of deal more with some of the inpatient SLPs. So a lot of the rehab SLPs. So there's several of them that also deal with head neck cancer patients as we have head and neck surgeons also in our practice. And so we interface, like I said, with those speech pathologists as well for swallowing and then mine do primarily voice and upper airway disorders. So we're very, very busy. Um, we do all sorts of stuff. We are very lucky to treat a lot of professional voice users and singers. So we, the practice has a really long longstanding relationship with Houston Grand Opera because our founder, Dr. Stasmi, was kind of a long, long-standing patron of the opera and so really generated some some really great relationships. So another cool thing about our practice is there's uh, something called the Center for Performing Arts Medicine at Methodist. And it's also something that he, Dr. Stasmi, created, I think, I want to say 20, 30 years ago. And it's an organization that is really focused on connecting kind of any sort of performing arts of so the ballet opera symphony and interfacing that with the hospital with patients they have the largest musical therapy kind of department in the country I believe so they'll put on like you know they'll bring the symphony to the hospital lobby during Christmas and like have the ballet come and do the nutcracker it's really neat and so I feel really lucky in my practice to have a, a lot of kind of exposure and inter- interaction with a lot of the singers in town. Um, so it's a fun practice. So, Awesome.
1: Do you have any sort of singing background? I'm curious how you got into laryngology. Ooh, I do not.
2: Bruce and Teresa, you know, of course, yeah. do. I do have, I guess, a music background. I grew up playing the piano, as most, I guess, Asian children do. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I don't know that that's that special, but I did like it. I actually was kind of played competitively until maybe early high school and then I kinda just got into it for fun. So I still play when I can. People recently insist on calling me a pianist and I think that is way overkill, but I do enjoy it. I always told myself the first when I finally buy my house house my first piece of furniture will be a piano. So oh, beautiful working on that dream still. So no, I got into the field Really more in a roundabout way. I didn't know that I wanted to do laryngology. I know some, certainly in the speech pathology world that go into voice, I feel like that's always the kind of known trajectory when they realize it. For me, I feel like for laryngologists, it's less common. I know that there are some who are performers, but less common. I got into it more just kind of with exploration along the way. I don't have anybody in my family who's in medicine, actually, except for my younger brother who followed me. So I'll take yeah. credit for that. But I I think I just thought I wanted to be a doctor. And I think I'm lucky that I love it as much as I do, because yeah. I'd never really had exposure to it growing up. And so then when I went to medical school, I kind of knew I wanted to do surgery, but I also didn't want to be just a surgeon where I didn't get to see patients and really build relationships with them. And so that's kind of how I found some of the subspecialties and ENT. A really nice balance, I think, of, you know, I spend a lot of time in the office getting to talk to patients. I have some patients who are short-term patients. We operate on them, and then we never see them again, and they do well, hopefully. <laughs> or we have some longer-term patients, like our dystonia patients, who we kind of maintain lifelong relationships with. And so, and then we have a lot of procedures in the office and a lot of surgeries as well. And so it has a really nice balance. And so I think I found ENT through that. I really felt, I really feel like I found a lot of my pathway from just my mentors, honestly. Like I remember rotating with some of the ENTs and med school and just thinking, wow, they seem like they really love their job. And they, they seem like they, they're really passionate about what they do, which is not always the case, honestly, especially in surgery. And so like they were interested in teaching me. And I so I think that's what kind of led me into that. And then laryngology, same thing. My I went to Ohio State for my residency, was very busy there. And the laryngologists there are still very close friends of mine. And definitely I could just see myself doing what they did. And that's kind of how I got into it. So I think I initially actually liked it for some of the airway parts of it. And then I really grew more into the voice component of it. So I went to New York for my fellowship. I trained with Dr. Michael Pittman and Dr. Lucian Salica. And there at Columbia Cornell is really where I got a lot more kind of professional voice. Of course, how better can you get exposure to professional voice in New York City? And so there I really... Kind of bolstered that experience, and then am happy to bring that back to Houston. So it's been kind of a roundabout journey. Though I think, like I guess I would say, if I had to say one thing, it's just m- mentorship that led me to that. And I feel like now I'm trying to pay that back. I really am passionate about education uh, myself. I am kind of the medical student coordinator for our department, and I was just announced as the associate program director for the residency. And so education and teaching is a really important thing to me. And I want to be the person for the younger people that those mentors were for me. So it's been fun to kind of have it come full circle a little bit.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Oh, I love hearing that. Yeah. And I feel like all medical professionals would just be so much better off if everybody had that perspective. <laughs> so Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, so where should we go next?
2: So I figured for today a good, um, so I was actually brainstorming with my SLPs about what a good topic would be, because I know again, that the focus, not the only focus, but one of the focuses of this podcast is swallowing. And though I definitely see swallowing patients and I see, I enjoy it. I feel like it's not necessarily a cornerstone of my practice in the same way that it is for, I know some of the other physicians that you've interviewed, like Dr. Belofsky. And so I wanted to think about something that I deal with kind of regularly that could be a fun topic to talk about in terms of interacting with SLPs, interacting with patients, interacting with procedures and all of that. And Teresa was the one that gave me the idea that actually something we see very commonly is kind of vocal fold immobility. So paralysis specifically, and how that impacts swallowing. And so I thought that was kind of a good topic because it has a little bit of everything, some about voice, some about swallowing, some inpatient, some outpatient. And so that is, I thought, a good topic for us to discuss. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Love it. So where should we start?
2: So I guess I can tell you about how these patients come to me. So as I mentioned in my practice, I'm predominantly outpatient. However, we have a busy, busy tertiary care hospital that we also staff. And so whether I'm on call, we take care of patients coming into the ER But even when I'm not taking call, just on a day-to-day basis, we'll see kind of routine consults. And so the patients that come to us with, and I'll kind of specify this as unilateral vocal fold immobility, though obviously there's a range of paresis paralysis, but I think we can just kind of call it that for today. They'll come to me from many different avenues. So I would say the most, most common probably, it's probably the single most common inpatient consultation that I will receive. And a lot of times it'll actually come to me from the speech pathologists that are in the hospital. So like I said, I'm very lucky to have a really good relationship with them as well. And they all, we all have each other's cell phone numbers and we just reach out to each other. And so it'll either be the team will consult us because the patient had a neck surgery, a chest surgery, and then got extubated and they don't have a voice. So they call us first and we'll come and scope the patient. The, the, my residents will typically go see the patient and then let me know about it. Or sometimes actually they will have presenting more like with dysphagia and swallowing dysfunction symptoms and the SLPs will have been called to come do a bedside eval or a fees and then they notice the immobility. And so we get the consults from various different ways. And so, but we, again, collaborate very closely together. We're almost always both involved. So that's kind of the inpatient side. It's a very busy kind of cardiovascular hospital. So Dr. DeBakey practiced here at Methodist. And so they do a lot of cardiac surgeries, lung surgeries, lung transplants. And so we can talk about that a little bit in terms of the ideologies. And then the other way that these patients come to me is outpatient. And so after, a lot of times after surgery, they will get kind of referred to me or they will a lot of times come find me because even their surgeon didn't really know what happened and they just kind of Google and say, hey, I lost my voice, where do I go? And then that'll sometimes be for, I would say on the outpatient side, more often for voice complaints, but then swallowing, but sometimes swallowing as well. So some of the common etiologies that we see, and so we kind of tend to break it up into three kind of main categories. And so the most kind of obvious in terms of what the reason is would be some sort of iatrogenic cause, so after a surgery surgery. So the very common surgeries that could cause this, it's typically involving the recurrent laryngeal nerve or sometimes the vagal nerve, depending on where the injury occurred. But I would say the most common things that we see after thyroid surgery, after parathyroid surgery, after any sort of neck surgery, so chest surgery, heart surgery, aortic surgery, all those things along the pathway of the recurrent nerve. So all of those things are potentially whether it's the nerve being cut, which oftentimes is not the case. A lot of times we think it's more from stretch and just edema that patients will suddenly have an impact in their vocal mobility. And they'll have a very breathy voice, which can, again, sometimes cause dysphagia as well, which we'll talk about. And then kind of the second most likely thing that can happen is just idiopathic, which really just as doctors speak for, we don't really know why, but we think that it has something to do with inflammation, viral edema. A lot of times we see it after someone has a upper respiratory illness, so they'll be sick and then they'll wake up the next day without a voice. Though in a lot of times that is kind of a diagnosis of exclusion. There's not really a great way to prove that in terms of what the etiology is. And so that leads into kind of the third category, which we often will want to rule out. And so if I see a patient, again, in the hospital, it's after surgery, it's quite clear. And so also from intubation, as I forgot to mention, is another one from an iatrogenic standpoint. But if I see someone in the office who's otherwise healthy, came in and just said, hey, I lost my voice, I scoped them and their vocal fold isn't moving, then the next step from our standpoint is typically to get some imaging, to be sure that we're not missing that third category, which is some sort of malignancy or a growth that's actually pushing or growing into the nerve. And so sometimes we'll find a lung cancer or something. So we'll typically get a CAT scan from what we call from the skull base to the aortic arch, which is basically the length and the trajectory of the recurrent nerve. And so those are the three main categories, but of course, within each of those categories, there's kind of
1: subsets of etiology. Interesting. Super fascinating. Have you, this is sort of off topic, but not off topic. Have you seen many more of these patients, I guess, post COVID? Like, is this, is it much more common now post extubation? And We
2: have actually, we've seen a lot of just so many things, unfortunately. So this is certainly a common thing. And again, when I would say more often from like intubation, for example, they're intubated for COVID. We see a lot of, paresis as well, which we'll talk about less in this talk. But again, that's also even harder to really pinpoint or prove. I mean, it's kind of controversial what people think about all of that. But I feel like we see a lot of that. I would say the most common thing in my practice that I've seen from COVID is kind of airway issues, unfortunately. So nice. I think most of us are kind of expecting to continue to see more of that. It has had a great, certainly a big impact on, I feel like, a, most ENT's practices and you all as well.
1: So Interesting. Great. Right. Yeah. So after we have the etiologies, so what do we do
2: for them? Yeah. So I think I can separate it a little bit into inpatient, outpatient, because it kind of varies. So I thought a lot of the dysphagia portion of it, you know, swelling dysfunction, I feel like typically is more in the inpatient setting, because, and that's one thing I really wanted to focus on in this talk, because I teach my residents this too, is that oftentimes that is not. we don't want to have just tunnel vision in terms of, okay, the vocal cord is not moving. That's why they're having all of their problems. And it's just not typically true. And that's usually those patients, it's multifactorial when it comes to their swallowing dysfunction, right? So it is the vocal fold immobility certainly potentially putting them at higher risk for aspiration possibly, but a lot of times they're also just deconditioned, especially if they've just had a major surgery, they've been intubated for a while. And so a lot of times they'll have multiple other things, pharyngeal weakness, just coordination, just overall deconditioning that can lead to difficulties with swallowing as well. And so I would say from the inpatient side, what happens in, again, my practice typically We'll get the consultation somehow. One of the residents will go and see the patient. They'll scope the patient. They'll kind of send me the exam and then we'll talk about the patient together. And then we'd really, really try to kind of isolate out some of the potential things that could be. So say that this is a consult for dysphagia predominantly. We'll try to isolate out what are some of the potential things that could be causing. It. And could the vocal fold paralysis be one thing for sure? And so I think what, yeah, one thing I really wanted to get at with this was that that's Almost never the only thing on the inpatient side because there are a lot of these other things involved, and I think it's important. Like when I teach, for example, my residents, I always tell them you got to make sure though that you counsel both the patients and the the teams who are consulting us about what are the things that could be going on and what are the things that we could address because I think oftentimes I will just get a consult from the team that says, hey, they have, I think they have a vocal paralysis. They just need an injection as if that's just going to fix everything. And I spend a lot of time educating, again, the consulting team and the patients, because it's sometimes it's tough whenever the patient sometimes is told by the ICU doctors, for example, oh, don't worry about it. We'll call the ENT to come do the injection and then everything will be fine. And so they've already kind of set the expectations a little bit. And I have to go and kind of back that up and say, okay, well, here are some of the Uh, potential things that this could help with, but it may not fix everything and really setting kind of goals of care. And it's different for different people. So some people, maybe that is really the primary issue and they're otherwise healthy and they're going to bounce right back. And, but unfortunately for a lot of people, it's not, I had one patient actually just last week, I just injected and I was thinking about it as I was thinking about this podcast and he has a vocal paralysis, but I mean, his pharyngeal function and everything was way out of proportion to that. And so I did do the injection mostly for his voice. And I just really made sure that his family knew, like, hey, we should repeat a modified, for sure, modified barium swallow in about a week, and hopefully he does better. But I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't. And I really just made sure that they understood that. And it actually took me probably saying that five or six times before they did. And even after he had his repeat MBS, and he failed it, and I wasn't surprised, they called me and they said, hey, he failed it, can we just do it again? And I said, well, like, I try to kind of prepare you for this and like, no, I don't, I don't know that doing it again right now without any other intervention is going to be helpful. And so I think a lot of it is education. It's unfortunate. I wish, obviously, then I tell them, I wish that there were things that I could do additional to this injection that could just like improve his pharyngeal squeeze and improve his coordination and all of that. But it's not a magic wand solution. But I think for people who don't deal with this on a regular basis, like we do, they may think that and so i think that is really a, a large part of it is just kind of understanding that it's not that easy but that some t- and that's what we'll talk i think a little bit about some of the papers that are out there about it because there's just there's some proof that it can be helpful there's some that it's maybe not i do think that overall if it's accessible In terms of doing the injection, that it can be a good thing to try because it's one of the only things interventionally that we can do, unfortunately. But so I think if it's not otherwise contraindicated from like a leading risk standpoint or overall health standpoint, that it's a reasonable thing to try knowing what the potential kind of expectations are. And for me, I think I'm lucky, at least in my practice, that my hospital is connected to my clinic, which is connected to my e- uh, my ER, which is connected to my OR. And so everything's kind of in the same place. So it makes it fairly easy for me to kind of figure out how to do all of that. But I know that's definitely not the case for certain practices. Like where I did my fellowship, the hospital was like kind of way like Upper West Side and our clinic was in Midtown. And so it just, it wasn't quite the same flow of you had a, I mean, it's not always that easy to kind of logistically do yeah. with some of these injections in patients. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying all that. I think it's interesting. I know I'm guilty of, I don't, gosh, I don't know, maybe five, 10 years ago, I had a supervisor that on our fees reports, she would say, oh, that if you suspect unilateral local full paralysis, just recommend an ENT consult for an injection. And I was like, I don't should write like for an injection like I believe that should probably be up to the ENT and she's like no no that's just what they do and I'm like I, I'm pretty sure they do more than just just that like I, yeah. so, yeah. so thank you for clarifying that I, I don't expect it to just be a band-aid fix so
2: yeah and I think like I said I'm lucky here that my the SLPs that I work with are very good about that and setting expectations with yes. the family and all that and I think that's what I keep harping on but I think that's the important thing is that as as you well know you know swallowing is just not that easy and i think yeah. i spend a lot of time explaining to patients cuz i think a lot of the things that we deal with collectively voice swallowing airway all these things people kind of take for granted they're just yeah. like oh like swallowing like it's just i i just swallow and like i just i talk and it just comes out and they don't think about it and, and nor should they because i think it makes sense to take it for granted but compared to like your heart pumping or your legs moving, they don't think about it as a kind of bodily function in that way. And so I use a lot in my practice of kind of sports analogies because I think it makes sense to people a lot more, whether that's like for voice, for example, I give a lot of like, oh, athlete analogies and physical therapy for voice therapy and that kind of thing. And I think it's similar for swallowing that I try to explain to patients and their families. I know we take it for granted and when when it's normal, you just do it and you don't think about it, but it's actually like, incredibly complex and it requires a lot of coordination and a lot of muscle strength. And it's the same. I think it makes sense to them when I say, well, it's the same as if a stroke and you can't walk and it takes a while to like learn how to walk again or learn how to move your limbs the way that you used to. And it's a similar thing. There's also muscles involved. There's also coordination involved. And so, and I think it, it takes a while for them to wrap their heads around that a little bit because they just don't think about it that way, which again, makes sense. I wouldn't either if I didn't do what I do. So, but I think we are, I feel like it's in our duty, I guess, to kind of, you know, kind of really make sure that people get it. I think that is one thing maybe that is hard for all of us who deal with any sort of swallowing things is that it's not something that is taught in med school very well. I don't know how much it's focused on in SLP kind of training. I think it varies probably on where you were trained and what placements you had and whatnot. But I think even, you know, doctors really don't understand it and that's how we get patients who are like NPO for six months or whatever. And so um, I think we're hopefully our, our field is doing our fields collectively are kind of doing more in terms of educating on that. Cause I think that's really where change is made. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's really unfortunate because I think some grant programs do, a phenomenal job. And I think some do a terrible job and it's just being honest. And it stinks depending on where you went, but also what patient population you want to work with too. It just stinks if that was the hand that you were dealt, but hopefully things like this, you know, podcasts like this can help people realize that there's so Mm -hmm. much more out there and so much more nuance to, to it. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Awesome. Did we touch on, on all the controversies then? Let's
2: see. I think I can talk a little bit about the actual injections when I do do them. So, so I do actually end up doing a lot of... I feel like that's probably the procedure I do the most in general is probably uh, now that we, well, we're lucky, we're fortunate to be able to do a lot of these injections awake in the office or at the bedside. And so I do them, again, most of the time in the office for outpatients that come to see me mostly for voice. But I will certainly, as long as I think it's appropriate and hopefully minimal harm. I will certainly will do them for inpatients as well in certain scenarios. And so I will either go to the bedside if I have to, because it is harder at the bedside from a logistical standpoint. Just patients in their hospital bed and you have to sit them up. And it's just it's just tougher to do. But again, I was I said I was lucky enough that my clinic is attached and so by walkway. And so if they're fairly stable and they're on the floor and they're mobile, I will sometimes have them wheeled over to my office and I'll do an office, which is nice. And I do, you know, there's lots of different techniques for doing these injections. And so my go-to is kind of trans cervical. So either through a, there's two major main approaches. There's a few other ones, but I feel like the most common are either through a thyroid approach or through a cricothyroid approach, I'm pointing at me as if my, yeah. my video is going to be on the podcast. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, those are my typical go-to maneuvers. And I will just have a flexible scope in the nose to help me look. I will kind of numb their neck. Sometimes I will topicalize their throat as well with 4% topical lidocaine, depending on the type of injection I'm going to do. And then we will do it through the neck. And I usually either, I would say my Go-to, uh, probably injectable for most comers is hyaluronic acid or Restylane or some, I know some people use Juvederm. I will sometimes use voice gel, which is a kind of more temporary one if you expect them to recover soon, or I will use gel very commonly for more for voice, like for for my singers, for example, just in case they don't like it. So it doesn't last quite as long. And then I will sometimes also use Cahar, calcium hydroxylapatite, which lasts longer, but has some potential risks of if you inject it in the wrong space, you can sometimes cause scarring and stiffness of the vocal fold. So I kind of reserve that for specific patients. And then there's a new type of injectable out there. If people have heard of silk is kind of just recently starting to be used. I think I'm about to do my first silk injection, hopefully in the next couple of weeks. So that one's uh, thought to potentially be permanent or at least more long lasting, but it's Fairly new, like within the last couple of years, as an injectable. So there are lots of lots of different options, and then cool. you know, and some people do also do their injections transoral, so grabbing the tongue and using like a curved needle. I will do that. Oh my in god, t- that sounds yeah, brutal. I will, I, <laughs> yeah, people do okay with it, actually, if you numb if you numb them well enough. So yeah. I do do I do do them that that way sometimes. Like for example, someone who's had like a recent surgery in their neck, and their neck is just really swollen, and I feel like I can't do it that way. I will do it gotcha. that way, but it's probably my my last scenario, just in terms of my own comfort with it, I know other ENTs out there that's kind of their go-to. So I think that a lot of that is preference in terms of how you were trained and what you're comfortable with. So it's a good procedure, and it does, like I said, I think in terms of the thoughts of what it does for the voice, it certainly more has more reliable, kind of predictable outcomes in terms of glottic closure and improving that and improving the strength and sound and projection of your voice, for sure. Again, nothing's ever a guarantee, but it seems to be quite a bit more predictable in terms of how your voice will respond. I think the swallowing, like how well you will improve. And so the thought is that it helps with glottic closure. And so theoretically, that should help you with preventing aspiration. And some of the studies that I was kind of looking at when I was doing kind of a literature review to prepare for this, that that's the the thoughts behind it. And there are some studies that show, sure, maybe it does decrease that. But then there's been a meta-analysis out there that said, actually, nobody's really proven that it's actually prevented aspiration. And then there are some studies that show, okay, well, like some, uh, if you do it, early in the hospital, then you can potentially decrease kind of pulmonary side effects. So pneumonias and things like that. But then there's, I think one of the studies that I listed for you showed actually like trying to put objective data to this. So putting actually manometry and measuring like, are we actually like changing anything? And it showed it actually didn't. And so I think it's, it's hard to know. And it's so again, variable from patient to patient because everybody's deficit is going to be very variable in terms of how much of this is because their vocal cords aren't meeting and how much of this is because they're having trouble with high elevation. How much of this is because yeah. they're just not coordinated enough to be able to do this. And so, but I think, like I said, I will typically at least as long as everybody on board kind of understands what the potential upsides are. If I don't think that there's a major downside, I will certainly do them for patients. And sometimes they surprise me and they do super well after we do yeah. the injection after next modified, they fly, they pass with blind colors. And so I think it's a good procedure. I wish, I think there's a lot of other people out there doing some great research on finding other ways that we can kind of help intervene. And I certainly hope sometime in my career that there are other things that we can do to really beyond just an injection, which again, I think is something that we grasp at because it's something we can do. And as surgeons, yeah. we we want to
1: do something. We want to be able to help. So yeah. Yeah. And I think that's it. You know, as I was talking about, I was like, oh, just say the BNT will just do an injection and that'll be it. And it'll be all fixed. And yeah, yeah, it's so interesting to hear that there's pros and cons and that it just might not be what we think it is. So. Yeah. Yeah.
2: How often do you guys surgically intervene? So I would say that on at least, I guess for most of these patients that either come to see me in the office or I see in the hospital, it's, Fairly early from when this all started. And so we consider it until it demonstrates otherwise that it's hopefully temporary, unless, for example, someone had a thyroid tumor where they cut the recurrent nerve and you know it's not coming back, then you know that's permanent. But most of the time, I will say that without that type of information, I will treat them as if they have a chance of recovery. And so the nice thing about the injections, like I said, are that they are very accessible. Now we don't have to put people under general anesthesia and take them to the operating room. We can just do it and it can take 10, 15 minutes to do. And so in terms of kind of other surgical interventions, so there are some that, that I think I get into more with patients when we are more in the realm of, okay, this probably isn't going to recover and you're probably going to have, you know, this is what you're going to have. And I would say that studies out there, it used to be about 12 months. Now, I think more people are thinking closer to nine months. It's probably been reasonably call permanent. And so some of the surgical interventions then are also kind of, I guess the, there's either the thoughts of medializing the vocal fold, augmenting it. And so I would say probably the most go-to procedure for that is the medialization laryngoplasty or type 1 thyroplasty. And that's basically a procedure where you make an incision in the neck and you kind of find the thyroid cartilage. That's why it's called a thyroplasty. So it's not the thyroid gland, but the thyroid cartilage. And you make a little window into it and you basically tuck an implant into it. And I would say the most common implants out there are either Gore-Tex, the same stuff that you put in jackets, but a medical grade. And then it's elastic, which is like a silicone type material. And so the concept is the same as the injection, which is basically pushing the vocal fold over so that the other vocal fold if you need it, and they can close better. But the permanence of it is that the injectable wears off, it gets absorbed by the body, and the implant theoretically does and shouldn't. There are small risks of it getting infected or moving or something, but we typically tell them for the most part, you can expect that this should last you. And so that I feel like is the typical trajectory of these patients is evaluate them, decide if an injection is something that's appropriate. If it is, you can do it. You kind of choose the material. Again, I choose it based on a lot of patient factors and risk factors and even like how feasible I think the injection is going to be. For example, if I think an injection is going to be really challenging for me, I'm a lot more nervous to use something like Kaha just in case I can't get it exactly right. And so, and then seeing how they do, and then once the injection wears off, we think about the implant. So I would say that's the most common trajectory. There are other, oh, and then the one kind of additional adjunct procedure that sometimes is applicable when you do a thyroplasty is something called an arytenoid adduction. And what that is, is putting a stitch in the muscular process of the arytenoid and actually kind of pushing the posterior aspect or the, the vocal process of the focal fold in a retinoid where it attaches to the retinoid over towards the midline. And so that is something that we will sometimes do in addition to the thyroplasty at the same time in certain candidates. So if they have like a really unstable retinoid and we feel like they're still going to have a big gap posteriorly, if we don't do that. So I would say the rates of that are fairly low, like in the low yeah. double digits, but it just depends on that. That's where it relies a little bit on your assessment with stroboscopy in the
1: office of, okay, do they need this or not? Um, that's so fascinating. I, n- I had never heard of that. And I just think of oh, so many yeah. patients I've that I'm like, Oh my God, that arrhythmia just hanging on for dear life. there. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah.
2: It's a really good procedure because there are some people I think that really need it because yeah. the, the implant itself won't be enough. I'll say that as a laryngologist, because sometimes we do revisions for people. So someone who's had a thyroplasty already, and then they're like, well, I still am sounding very breathy and I still am, aren't and not better. A lot of times it's because they probably needed an arytenoid adduction as well. I and mean, it's a challenging part of the procedure. It is probably, the thyroplasty is pretty easy, but the arytenoid can be quite frustrating. And so yeah. it can be hard to do, but sometimes I think it's pretty necessary for really stabilizing it and kind of closing that posterior gap. So, but it does definitely add some complexity to the procedure. Usually I keep those patients overnight for monitoring because they can have pretty significant swelling afterward. And so it's definitely a little bit more kind of involved. And then the other kind of things that are out there, some people will do fat injection. still. I think that that used to be much more commonly done probably a few decades ago than it is now. And that basically they harvest some, some fat from either your belly or your thigh most commonly and they process it and then you put it in a syringe and you actually inject that. And the thought for that was that it also could be permanent. I think the reason it's fallen a little bit out of favor is because over time, it's kind of been shown that it's very unpredictable. There's some people where it will last forever, quote unquote, and there's other people where I feel like it dissipates very quickly. I know sometimes people, for example, when we inject injectable, some sort of absorbable material, most people over inject it a little bit to account for edema and assume that some of that water will kind of dissipate quickly. So some people will over inject with the fat and then it doesn't do that. And then you have to go back in and remove the fat. And so I think from the people I train with, it's rarely done now. However, I know that again, earlier on, it was done a lot more frequently, but that is a good option for some people. I think, again, that's the practice of medicine. The art of medicine is really kind of adjusting that to patient preference and also like what, what, what your recommendations are. Sometimes I think there's not one right answer. I think, for example, a good option for that is a young female who's like, I really don't want a scar on my neck and I, but I want something that lasts longer and I'm willing to try this. And maybe if it doesn't last as long, I'm still, I would rather do that. And so yeah, that's a discussion yeah. that you can have with those patients because maybe like the most important thing to them is like not having some sort of visible view of that, which is completely reasonable. And so that, that is someone who that might be good for I know sometimes I will also consider it in like cancer patients who've had radiation. There've been some studies out there that you can put implants in people who have been radiated, but depending on how bad their neck responded to the radiation, sometimes you're just a little nervous to make an incision here in case it doesn't heal. And so those are people I will still consider a fat injection on. So certainly I still think that there's a place for it, but it's not necessarily one of my go-tos. And then the other kind of fun option is uh, actually re And so this is done actually most commonly now, I would say in the pediatric population, this is really become standard of care for a lot of unilateral you know, paralysis. And with this surgery, you actually again, you really wait until it's, you know, it's not coming back. Some people will confirm that with an EMG. So you don't want to cut the nerve if there's a chance that it might recover. But once you're, you kind of convinced that it is not going to recover, then you can actually cut the nerve at the kind of distal end of it. And then most people, the most common is taking the ansa cervicalis, which is a nerve in the neck that goes to the strap muscles and you kind of hook that up. So you hook a new nerve up to the recurrent nerve and it has really great certainly really good results in the pediatric population. It's been less studied in the adult population. There's been some studies out there that show after probably age 40, 50, you have a little bit of waning benefit. And I would say the majority of my patients are more around that age. So I don't offer this all that often, but it doesn't result in mobility of the vocal fold, unfortunately. And so that's something that you have to kind of counsel the patients about it. this doesn't make it move again, but it helps with muscle tone. And for some people that is completely sufficient. So I think a lot of people will, but it takes several months for the kind of nerve to regenerate and grow. And so I think Most commonly, someone would do the re-innervation and also do a temporary injection at the same time to kind of like get them through until it starts to kick in. So I've done a couple. Certainly, I have some like younger patients who come for trauma or something. And so I'm always excited when I get a chance to do them because it's certainly less common in my patient population. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Yeah, Yeah. And like I said, in the pediatric ENT world, I, I think it's super common now and they have great results. What's the
1: etiology usually in peds that requires that?
2: I mean, I think a lot of just babies who were sick and who were like intubated for whatever reason, preemies, a lot of them will have that. Even sometimes you can have a paralysis from like birth trauma and things like that. And so usually younger kids. Interesting. Thank you. Did
1: we get through the counseling stuff?
2: think for the most part I guess we can touch just the last thing maybe just on I assume like what do you get questions from a lot of listeners in terms of I feel like that's whenever I do any of these talks that's the question that always comes up it's like how do I reach out to an ENT if I don't have one
1: or like something yeah, like that. I think so. I think the, the biggest question that people get is just how to form a good relationship with their ENT Like for whatever reason, that just seems to come up a lot, like they're just not well respected or not listened to, or just really don't have Mm -hmm. a seat at the table as much as just being a collaborative partner. So I think if you have any advice on how to extend the olive branch and and hopefully form a nice working relationship.
2: So as I've said many times, I feel very fortunate to have very strong relationships with both my outpatient voice SLPs and my inpatient SLPs. And I know that that is not what it's like everywhere and i've been in a lot of centers where that is what it's like so i've always seen good models, but I just know that that's not what it's like everywhere. Certainly I've trained in kind of big cities, big med centers where there's laryngologists. And I think a lot of places there's only just ENTs who may have less comfort with some of these things. And in some places there's no ENT at all. And so I recognize that I'm very fortunate to have these relationships, but it's also not a coincidence in that we've built that. Like my partner and I, when I got here, we just had Maurice, who was wonderful, but our first kind of Goal was okay. We got to hire another one because I feel like as we get busy, they get busy, and I really can't do my I can't practice without them. I can't. But yeah, one question that we I feel like often get when I've done these talks and things is, what do I do if I don't have that relationship? And I I wish I could say that every ENT is as well trained in kind of voice and swallowing as we'd like them to be, but that's just also not the case. I think it's also very variable, just like it is for you guys in terms of where you were placed and what you were trained to do. And so I would hope that everyone is trying their best as well. But I think some of it is also like, I have a really, good friends from residency who ended up in general ENT and they're wonderful doctors. I think they don't do a lot of these office procedures and things that I do just because they weren't trying to do it, but they're really great about, you know, they'll actually kind of text me when they have like a voice or swallowing question. And so I think there, there are people out there who are trying, but I think it can be hard sometimes that we also as doctors and ENTs don't always have all the, I mean, I don't have all the answers certainly, but so I think just, I think the best you can do is kind of try to find who's available and just reach out. And I think it's just going to be case by case in terms of what you get back. But like when my friend, so he practices up in Wisconsin, he's asked me a few times, like, oh, is this something I should send to an SLP or how do I get in touch with them? I just say, hey, like the least you can do is just send him a message and say, hey, this is, do you think that you'd be comfortable treating this? And if so, like, can we touch base about it? And like, all, all you can do is ask and it's too bad if they don't give you a good response, but then at least you've done kind of your part. And then the nice thing about social media and these kinds of things is we are kind of all in touch with each other. I think for in the laryngology world, we all kind of either know each other or at least have heard of each other. I know that you interviewed Dr. Hussain on the podcast. I listened to it and she's really big on TikTok and I've seen like three patients in the last Month, who we were like, "Oh, I got referred to you by Doctor Hussein because I sent oh, her. A, so funny. I sent her a oh. DM on Instagram and
1: she in and- Things. I mean, yeah. yeah, amazing. Who knew you could create ENT content on TikTok? Like, yeah, they were like, oh, she made a post. And like, I
2: was like, that's me. And so I messaged her and was like, is there anybody in Houston? And they gave me your name. And so amazing. I think that's one, that's like one yeah. really cool thing about this is that we are all kind of interconnected now. So yeah. reach out to an SLP in the city or reach out to, you know, I think a lot of us, I'm not at nearly as active on social media as she is, but I think we all have a presence, and I try yeah. to respond to messages. And so, just find somebody somehow, and then reach out, and then see if they can get you in touch. And just try.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think you know. I think of like doctors and nurses are like peanut butter and jelly. Like they can't do their job without the others. And I think like yeah. SLPs and ENTs need to be the uh, same yeah. way. Like we need you, you need us. Like, it's just silly that some places just don't have that sort of working relationship. So, yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Did we? I think we covered most of it, unless you have questions. Did you talk about that one paper? You mentioned it a little bit. I think so, yeah. Yeah, okay.
2: I mostly more wanted to cover that. It's all over the place. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I don't think that there's a definite yes or no, but.
1: Yeah, yeah. Awesome. This has been a wonderful conversation. Do you have anything, any final thoughts for the people?
2: I don't think so. All
1: right. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much. So you are on social media. Can people find you?
2: Yes. So I am on Instagram at dr.yenu. And then I'm on Twitter though. I'm not very active on it, but it's, I think Texas voice MD. So come and follow me. I'd love to have you.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your, your Thank insight you. with everything. And I think this was so informative. I think this will help so many younger clinicians that just start really wanting to explore more about the voice and swallowing world and things that happen before patients get to us. So I think it's been really helpful. Download the show notes from this episode, please visit SwallowYourPride There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week!